Open your Bibles up to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 28. And here we go. Wow. This is the last sermon. This is the last sermon on Matthew's Gospel. I only paused there because I was arguing with myself whether to to uh, live by that or not. But I've, in that moment, I won. And so, yes, this is indeed the last sermon from Matthew's Gospel. We have been at this a very long time. And Matthew's Gospel, for me, has become a very good friend. And so it's uh, with a sense of sadness, really, to close this out and to say goodbye, old friend. Not that we'll never see you again, but uh, we are not definitely going to to explore all the richness of the glories of Christ revealed in the Gospel of Matthew probably ever again in my lifetime. And so, for me, that makes it kind of a sad thing. But here we are, and there are, uh, without getting, I don't want to get morose in this, so uh, here we go. There are four lessons, four lessons from the uh, end of Matthew's Gospel here. This is verses 16 to 20. Matthew's final words, there are four lessons, four takeaways from this particular section. And we've looked at the first two of them in great detail in the last two weeks, and certainly you're not going to do that again, just quickly to, to run over them for you and get you thinking in the right direction here. The first one was in verses 16 and 17, and that lesson was that for some disciples, full faith comes slowly. Full faith comes slowly. But to the eleven disciples, but the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee, Matthew tells us, to the mountain which Jesus had designated. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some were doubtful. We spent a long time talking about how among the five hundred or so that Paul talks about being there at that event, that there were some whose faith was still a bit hesitant, still somewhat unformed, somewhat wavering or hesitating in their commitment to Christ. And, and as we explored all that together, what we determined from that is Matthew included this little bit of information for us because he's just about to tell us the Great Commission to go into the world and to make disciples, and he wants us to know that in the process of making disciples, we need to have great patience with people. We just need to be patient because not everybody comes to the same place of spiritual maturity in the same time period. We're not on all the same exact arc or trajectory. So full faith comes slowly. That was our first lesson. Second lesson in verse 18 was that Jesus has universal authority. Matthew says, And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And we spent a long time talking about what he meant by that and that really intriguing and on the face of it baffling sort of statement that the, the full authority is something that had been given to him. Thus, he is saying something that he did not always possess. And of course, that uh, caused us to really dig deeply into the whole Uh, topic of the messianic king and what we determined and we looked at psalm 2 where david spoke of these very things is that jesus as the the great messianic king the descendant of david by virtue of his resurrection 
received from the Father the authority over the entire universe, something he always has and held in his deity he now received in his humanity as the Davidic king. We noted the tension between John 3, 17, where Jesus said he didn't come to judge, and Revelation 19, where he is clearly comes as the judge. And what we determine from all of that is that Matthew 28, 19 and 20 fits into the time period, the seam between Christ's first and second coming. Jesus has now, by virtue of his death, burial, and resurrection, and ascension to the right hand of the Father, as the Davidic king, all authority in the universe. And that is an incredibly powerful concept, and is the basis under which we really look now at the third lesson, where I want to dig in with you. The third lesson, we must spread the news. Therefore, verse 19... Therefore, in light of the universal authority of Christ, in light of that, therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. We get to the actual heart of the Great Commission. Now, as we look at it, there's some grammatical observations that are important for us to to make that will set the stage to to teasing out what Jesus is exactly commanding here. And so, uh, grammatically, there is one main verb in this section, one imperative verb, one command verb, and it is the verb, make disciples. That is the main verb that controls this passage, this great commission. It is to make disciples. Preceding the main verb and following the main verb are a couple of participles. One to precede, two to follow. Those participles excuse me, are going and baptizing and teaching. So you have the, this grammatical arrangement of the main verb with a participle to precede it and two to follow it. So what's the point of all of that? Well, the point of all of that is to try to figure out where does the emphasis lie. Is the emphasis in going? Is the emphasis in baptizing? Is the emphasis in teaching? Or is the emphasis in making disciples? Answer, making disciples. That is the main emphasis of the passage. That is the command. It is to make disciples. Now, some observing the grammatical structure here would translate the the beginning part of verse 19 and something along the lines of, as you are going, make disciples. As you are going, trying to account for the the participle nature there uh, of the the word go. And in a sense, that's true, but but they're... This grammatical structure with the main verb preceded and followed by participles, those participles pick up some of the imperative flavor of the verb. What do I mean by all of that? Well, what I mean is this, that the main verb, the main command here is to make disciples. However, going also carries the imperatival flavor. There's there's a command a light command associated with that, as well as with baptizing and teaching. 
So the going is not just a simple statement of, hey, as you, you, know, as you get up and, in the morning and go to the grocery store, make disciples. Yes, that's true, but there's, there's something more here to it than just the matter of, hey, when you get up in the morning, wherever you go, make disciples. There is, there is associated with this great commission an emphasis on going. There's no question about it. So going is important. Baptizing is important. Teaching is important, but the main command is to make disciples. Now, this is not simply recorded here by Matthew. And in fact, the other Gospels and the book of Acts all contain their own versions of this same commission. So it is given by Jesus repetitively as it is recorded in the other three Gospels and in the book of Acts. So, for example, in Mark chapter 16, verses 15 and 16, Mark records Jesus' words this way. And he, that is Jesus, said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. He who has believed and has been baptized shall be saved, but he who has disbelieved shall be condemned. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. According to Mark. Luke records it a little bit differently. In Luke 24, 46 to 49, Then he, that is Jesus, said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead on the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending forth the promise of my Father upon you, but you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. So, different context, different place. But again, uh, Luke records a commission to the disciples to go forth and to make other disciples. John records in John 20 and verses 21 to 23, Jesus' words this way. So Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. So there it is, the heart of it again. As I have been sent, so I send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. And then, of course, Acts chapter 1 and verse 8 Where Jesus says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. And so, in all four Gospels, plus the book of Acts, we have, in one form or another, this commissioning of Jesus' disciples, not just the eleven, but here in Matthew, the 500, that they are not just merely to go about life, and as they're going about life, make disciples, but there is to be about them a, a, a priority about going and making disciples. Their life has changed. Their focus, their missions, their mission is different. Now, historically, let's just think together. It has always been God's heart to reach and save a remnant of humanity. This is not new in that sense. It has always been the heart of God to reach and to save not just the Jewish people, but a remnant drawn from all humanity. It is, it is very much woven into the Abrahamic covenant, right? In Genesis chapter 12 and verse 3, where God promises Abraham, in you all the families of the world will be blessed. 
So it has always been the heart of God to reach to a remnant of the human race. Now, that the deliverer by which the nations of the world will be blessed, of course, comes from the very loins of Abraham himself, that son of that greater son of David, Jesus of Nazareth. But what has changed, not God's heart in the matter, but what has changed is the, the methodology, the, the, the mechanism by which God is going to bring about these things. And, and by the resurrection of Christ and his ascension to the right hand of the Father, something has changed. God has changed mission strategies. All right? God has always had it to reach the world. But he is changing mission strategies here. There is now to be a new strategy, a new missions emphasis, a, a new focus upon reaching the remnant of humanity with the saving news of the deliverer. For 1,500 years prior to this time, the people of Israel have been God's chosen instrument, right? There at Mount Sinai, Exodus chapter 19 and verse 6 Moses tells them, you are a kingdom of priests. You are a kingdom of priests. You are my representatives, God saying through Moses, you are my representatives here on earth. You are to make me known. And God does it by setting them apart. They are set apart in, the, in some of the most unusual ways, certainly as you read through the Mosaic Law in, the, in the, uh, the first five books there, right, the Pentateuch, you see that their lifestyle is very, very different. And it gets right down to what they eat, what they wear, the, their worship calendar, their worship mechanism. Everything is, is really quite different, and it sets them apart as a very unique people group and as a very holy people group. Beyond that, God places them in a very interesting geographical area. He leads them into the promised land. And the promised land is very strategic geographically because it is the crossroads of the empires of the ancient world. The eastern empire of Iraq and, and uh, so forth and the western empire of Egypt, in order to trade with one another or war with one another, have to pass through Israel. They cannot bypass it. To do so would lead them into that terrible desert where they would all perish. And so they must follow the rivers north and then down along the coast and then down into the breadbasket of the ancient world, Egypt. That takes them through Israel. Beyond that, Israel is broken by a series of mountain ridges and valleys that run essentially north-south, which makes traversing them almost impossible. And so you have to, again, go up and around and down alongside. God places people in the mountains. Jerusalem is the city that is elevated, right? He places his people there, his temple there. So as the nations pass by, they look and they see and they inquire about these strange people of the God Yahweh. That was his mission strategy for 1,500 years. We could say that God's mission strategy was a come and see approach. It was come and see what the Lord has done, who is the Lord. Now it's changed. Now, by virtue of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it is no longer come and see, but it is now go and tell. It is a go-and-tell missions strategy. We can see it illustrated all over the place, but certainly in the, in the abrogation of the temple and its, and its uh, ritual worship 
that God is done with the come and see approach, and he is now fully committed to the go and tell approach. That's the mission strategy, go and tell. We see the change in Jesus' own mission strategy. We are in Matthew's own gospel, for example, back in chapter 10. Just be refreshed to this. Back in chapter 10, which was years ago, I realize. Before I came up, my wife uh, elbowed me. She takes copious notes, and she was flipped open her notebook, and it was dated November of 2014, and the uh, text was Matthew 21. So that tells me that uh, Matthew 10 must have been longer before that. So uh, years ago, in chapter 10 of Matthew's Gospel, uh, we noted in 5 and 6, uh, chapter 10, verses 5 and 6, these 12 Jesus sent out after instructing them, do not go in the way of the Gentiles, and do not enter any city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now at the time, we spent a long time looking at that and why that was so, and And we're certainly not going to go back there and do it again, go to the website, get the sermon, listen to it. But the point of the matter is that something has clearly changed. Jesus' instruction to the twelve at that point was avoid the Gentiles. Don't go to the Samaritans. And now at this point, certainly as he says in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, right? You are to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So there's a clear transformation, clear change in mission strategy. What has changed? It is the the ascension of Christ. It is his death, burial, resurrection, ascension to the right hand of the Father, receiving from the Father all authority, universal authority, by which he now commissions his church, which is to be born at this time, to go into the world now and tell everyone about Christ, but it's more than simply tell, as we'll see. In fact, if I were to boil this down, I think we could say that Jesus' words here in Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20, could be simply this. I own the entire universe and all people therein. Go and get them for me. Go and get them for me. That's your job. Now, he doesn't say, notice verse 19, chapter 28, he does not say make converts. He does not say, therefore, make make converts of all the nations. What he says is to make disciples. Now, certainly it is implied that the making of converts is part of the disciple-making process, but it's the The making of disciples is way more than simply conversions. Conversions is an initiation point, absolutely, essentially. But it is far more than simply conversions. And so that leads us to an important question. The important question is, if we are to make disciples, the question one would have to ask is, what is a disciple? Right? If you're told to go do something, you're told to go make something, then you would need to know, what is it that I am supposed to make? What is a disciple? Well, a disciple, let me just start with a very simple definition. A disciple is one who adopts the role of a learner, who adopts the role, the role of a learner with Jesus as the ultimate teacher. 
Okay? A disciple is one who becomes a learner of Jesus. That's a disciple. D.A. Carson, in his fine commentary on Matthew, elaborates it a little more, and he says, they take his yoke of authoritative instruction. You remember Jesus in Matthew 11? Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. So they take his yoke of authoritative instruction. They accept what he says is true because he said it. They submit to his requirements as right because he makes them. Disciples are those who hear understand and obey Jesus' teaching. That's a disciple. Jesus' own words, Matthew 12, beginning in verse 46, while he was still speaking to the crowds, behold, his mother and brothers were standing outside seeking to speak to him. Someone said to him, Behold, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak to you. But Jesus answered the one who was telling him and said, Who is my mother? And who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. The thing for us to note here is that obedience to the word of God is an essential characteristic of a disciple. It is about obedience. Now, if we know what a disciple is, how do we go about doing it? How do we go about making a disciple? Does, is the formula here, is the recipe giving to us here? And some would say that it is. Some would say the recipe for making disciples is found in the two participles here in verse 19, baptizing and teaching. Excuse me, teachings in 20. But that the two participles lay out the the, uh, mechanism or the means by which a disciple is made. But I would disagree. I don't think grammatically that is true. I think the baptizing and teaching are characteristics of a disciple, not a formula to make a disciple. And that's an important distinction. An important distinction. Disciples are those who are baptized and are learning to obey all that Jesus has taught. That characterizes the disciple. It is not the means by which we make one. And let me illustrate it to you this way. I could baptize you, and you could come every Sunday and listen to the word of God being taught and not be a disciple. And we know that to be true because... God forbid, but through the years, that's exactly what happens, right? People are baptized. People come. People sit. People listen. Some people even read their Bible, and yet, in the end, they prove themselves not to be disciples. It is not simply baptizing and being taught the Scripture that makes you a disciple. Those characterize the disciple, to be sure, but they are not the mechanism by which You are made into a disciple. We'll continue to tease that out here as we go. But notice he says, Go, therefore, or therefore go, and make disciples of all the nations, that that universal aspect to it, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We have talked at length about baptism. Baptism simply means to be plunged to be immersed or to be drowned 
in something. And in this case, it is to be immersed, plunged, or drowned into the triune God, into the name of the triune God. You see it? Baptizing them, plunging them, immersing them, dunking them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. So what is all of that about? What is all of that about? Well, without preaching a baptism sermon, and we again have those that you can check out, what Jesus is essentially saying here is that disciples are characterized by being immersed into fellowship with the triune God. It's being immersed into the fellowship of the triune God. That's what it means to be in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit. Or if you like, they are plunged into the lordship of the triune God. They are plunged into the lordship of the triune God. Now, water baptism, is it important? Of course it's important. Why? Because it is an outward visible sign of of an inward reality that one has been immersed or plunged into the fellowship with or lordship of the triune God. This is the symbol, water-based, that expresses the reality that people are in a new relationship with their creator. So uh, they are to be plunged into relationship with the creator God. That characterizes a disciple. Beyond that, he says, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Teaching them to observe, notice the word all, that I have commanded you. The mission of the early disciples was to reproduce themselves in other people. It was to reproduce themselves in other people. Again, we need to notice that Jesus is not calling upon education as an end goal. He is not saying here that make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them, plunging them into fellowship with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and then enrolling them in school putting them into a series of classes, expanding their Bible knowledge. Those are not what he says. There's not a focus on education here per se. Certainly teaching implies education, yes, but it is education designed to bring about a change of life. You see it? Teaching them to observe, or we could say it this way, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. So again, there is this emphasis upon a changed lifestyle, an obedient lifestyle. There is an ethical component to the Christian faith. And that is part of what characterizes a disciple of Christ. Jesus is concerned with the way of life, how a person lives. In fact, we could say legitimately that Christianity is a set of truth claims, propositional truth claims about Christ, right, that result in an ethical system for one to follow. It is a series of truth claims that one must believe that results in a changed ethic, a way to live, a a lifestyle that comports with these truths that one is called upon to believe. Now, can it all be done in the power of the flesh? Of course not. 
Of course not. It requires the indwelling spirit of the living God, right? To bring about conversion in the first place and certainly to work in, in, in every single person, all of us, right? To, to long for and desire and work at this new lifestyle, this new system or series of, of ethics, now, different writers, you know, speak of it in different ways. Paul in Romans 12, he talks about, you know, don't be conformed to this world, but be what? Transformed. How? By the renewing of your mind. So you see the teaching component, but the teaching component results in a changed lifestyle. This is what Christianity means. Now, it, there can be, there can be um, mischaracterizations of Christianity, if there's an, just an emphasis upon what you know with, with no resulting call upon your life in terms of ethics and behavior, right? That would be what's known as antinomianism. There can go the opposite extreme, and that could be all about how I live and what I do with no attention paid to what I believe. And that we would call legalism. So you, there are ditches on both sides of the road, but, but that does not mean we should abandon what Jesus is telling us here, which is... That to be a disciple of his, to be a follower or learner of his, is that we are to be baptized, we are to be plunged into the fellowship of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and we are to be uh, lifelong learners of what he has commanded, and that is to result in a changed way of living. Now, teaching them, verse 20, to observe all that I commanded you. When Matthew writes these words, I think it's a reasonable assumption that he has in mind his own gospel as the starting place for all that I have commanded you. When he records what Jesus says here, right, that you are to teach them to observe, teach them to obey all that I have commanded you, the listener to this or the possessor of this, of this scroll, this Matthew scroll, would go, okay, well, where do I learn about all that he has commanded? Well, the first and obvious place would be the very scroll that you're holding that contains this great commission. So does it go beyond that? Of course it goes beyond that, but it, but it should start here. It should start here. So why have we spent so long going through Matthew's gospel? We have spent so long going through Matthew's gospel because this is, in context, the very first place where we learn what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. So how does the book of Matthew lay it out for us? Well, let me... Let me answer that question by quickly reviewing a few things in the book. This is, an, this is another way to say goodbye to an old friend, okay? So there are five great discourses in Matthew's gospel. That's a, a structural reality of how the book was put together. There are, there are these five large sections of teaching in Matthew's gospel. Each one of these sections finishes with, uh, with uh, some kind of a, a statement about Jesus' teaching. So, for example, the first one is in chapter 5, begins in verse 1, runs all the way to chapter 7 and verse 29. We know it as the uh, Sermon on the Mount, right? And it ends, verse 28 of chapter 7, 
When Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. There was another great discourse in chapter 10 and verse 5, and it runs all the way to chapter 11 and verse 1, where it's written for us, when Jesus had finished giving instructions to the 12 disciples, he departed from there to teach and preach in their cities. There is another great discourse or section in chapter 13, beginning in verse 1, running all the way to verse 53 of chapter 13, where it said there, when Jesus had finished these parables, he departed from there. Chapter 18 and verse 1 begins the fourth great discourse of the book. And that ends in chapter 19 and verse 2. Well, verse, verse 1, when Jesus had finished these words, he departed from Galilee and came into the Jordan of the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, and the large crowds followed him, and so forth. Okay, so when he had finished these words, and then the final one is in chapter 24, begins in verse 1, it runs all the way to chapter 26, and verse 2, verses 1 and 2. When Jesus had finished all these words, he said to his disciples. Okay, so you see the formula that Matthew has recorded for us. So within the book itself lies the structure of the five great discourses. And by the way, if you ever want to study or teach the book of Matthew, that is one very legitimate outline that you could adopt to work your way through the book. You could study the five discourses and what Jesus is teaching in them. So let me just tell you this really quickly. The first discourse, right, the Sermon on the Mount, if it could be boiled down to one thing, I think it would be boiled down to chapter 5 and verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That is, those who are not reliant upon their own righteousness. Blessed are they who recognize that they have nothing to offer to God, for they will receive the kingdom of heaven. Okay, And then the rest of it all plays out with a comparison. You remember I told you years ago that it's the pharisaical way of, of approaching God and then Jesus, right? Not like this, but I say to you this. And so he lays out the heart of the law in the Sermon on the Mount over in chapter 10. We have instructions there in chapter 10 about uh, the, uh, the messengers of the kingdom. He gives this long and lengthy instruction. And if I could... If I could boil it all down, I would boil it down to what he says there in chapter 10 and verse 24 and following, where he essentially says that, that loyalty to him is a greater importance than your very life itself. All right? That's the basic message here. Do not, verse 28, do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Loyalty to Christ is of far greater value than your own physical life. That's the big idea of that teaching. Over in chapter 13, and there the parables of the kingdom. The big idea, the big thought to walk away from all of these parables is simply this. Early interest in the kingdom of heaven does not necessarily guarantee endurance and eventual entrance. Okay, so it's another endurance passage. And he, he plays it out where he talks about the various soils and how they respond. But in the end, it is only those who endure to the end. All right, so it's another passage about endurance. Early interest does not guarantee endurance. The fourth Discourse here in chapter 18 
beginning in verse 1, is these instructions concerning the greatness in the kingdom. Who is great in the kingdom of God? And you remember that. He takes a little child and he brings the child alongside him and says, listen, unless you become like a child, you won't even enter the kingdom of God. What's the big idea? The big idea of all of this is about humility. You want to enter the kingdom of God? One must humble their heart. It is about humility and the outworking of humility in the life of the people of God is forgiveness. And so Matthew chapter 18 and into uh, basically all of chapter 18 is about humility eventuating in forgiveness, resulting in forgiveness. The people of God are to be a forgiving people. That's what Jesus would have us practice. That's what Jesus would have us teach. And then finally in chapter 24... What's known as the Olivet Discourse, it's a, it's a discourse on the future return of the king and the establishment of his kingdom. And the big message here is that hard times are coming, but Jesus wins in the end. Hard times are coming, but Jesus wins in the end. Okay, so if you pull it all together, back to chapter 28, there are many lessons in Matthew's gospel to be sure but ones that must characterize his disciples and ones that, that, that must be part of our disciple-making activity are these lessons about being humble of heart, being loyal over our own lives, to, to endure to the end, to recognize that Jesus is going to prevail in the end, and so don't let the circumstances of life drive you from him. Okay? That's the big idea. Go, therefore, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. We could say it this way, follow me as I follow Christ, right? Follow me, teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. That implied in that is that, that I am following Christ and I would turn to someone and I would say, come with me, follow me. Don't follow me as your, as your guru. Follow me as one who is following Christ. And, in, and to the extent that I'm emulating Christ and you emulate that, you are now emulating Christ too. Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians 11.1. 1, Be imitators of me just as I also am of Christ. John says in 1 John 1.3. What we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Interesting statement. John says, listen, we are proclaiming this truth to you so that you can be in fellowship with us. Because we're in fellowship with God through his Son, Jesus Christ. Therefore, if you are not in fellowship with us, you are not in fellowship with God through his Son, Jesus Christ. Okay? The disciples make that statement. Now, we're not these original disciples. We're not the apostles, but we have is their word. And so we can say, right, that if we are in obedience to the word of God, if we are following the word of God, then we are in fellowship with God. And therefore, we can say to someone else, follow me as I follow those who were in fellowship with God through Christ. The idea, beloved, is to pass on the faith. It's about passing it on, Right? Of course, passing it on implies that you know what it is and that you're living it out. That you know what it is and that you're living it out. So, lessons. For some, 
Full faith comes slowly. Secondly, Jesus has universal authority. Third, we must spread the news. And fourth, in verse 20, the king is with us in the task. That's the fourth lesson here is the king is with us in the task. You see it here right at the end of verse 20. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Notice Jesus doesn't say, I will be with you, but I am with you. I am with you. There is certainty to his words here. And that's essential for a disciple to know and be, and be rock-solid sure of, that Jesus is with us, both in our own walk of faith and in our efforts to help others to become disciples, to become learners of his. I want you to think with me for a moment about the task that he is laying on these people. Okay, He has called them to the mountain. 500-plus have come to the mountain. He has now told them they are to go into all the world and they are to make the world, the nations of the world, representatives of the nations of the world, a remnant of all, a remnant of all of humanity. They are to make disciples of them. Right. These are the same people who were hiding just a little while before that, right? Just a few weeks before that. How monumental a task do you think it would be for 500 people to change the course of world history? Don't you think that's kind of a big, a big task to put on people? What I want you to do is I want you to go into all the world and I want you to turn the world into my pupils, my learners. I want you to, to speak to them about me and for me and, and baptize them and teach them so that they will change the way they live. That's your job. It's impossible. It is an impossible task. Absolutely impossible task. You can't change anyone. You can't change anyone. Listen, if you're a parent, you don't have to be a parent for very long at all before you recognize that you have no power over the heart of your cute little toddler. Okay? You have zero Now, you can make them, you know, you're bigger and stronger, and you can sort of make them do certain things for now. They may be sitting down on the outside, but on the inside, believe me, they're standing up. Okay? I mean, you just can't. None of us, none of us has any power or authority to do anything with anyone. We cannot make a disciple in our own strength. But I am with you always. He says, and this is the Jesus who said, I will build my what church and even the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Even death itself cannot overcome or prevail against the church of Jesus Christ. So how essential it is for us to recognize that the king is with us in the task. And by the way, it's not just them. It's us. Because notice he says, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. The age ends when Christ returns to establish the Davidic kingdom. That means that he is with not just those at the time who heard him speak, who lived and died, but he is with all of his, uh, his children, those who have followed in their example, generation after generation after generation. Here we are 2,000 years later, and should Christ tarry, it will continue until he returns at the end of the age. 
So therefore, listen, the comfort is for me, the comfort is for you. You are to make disciples recognizing that Jesus is with you, the King is with you in the task. That means you will be successful. You will be successful. Okay? You'll be successful. Now, in the last few minutes that we have, and it's only a few, I thought I would um, kind of talk to you a little bit about how does Foothill, how do we as a, as a body, as a group of believers here, go about trying to, to do our part in fulfilling the Great Commission in our little corner of the vineyard? How do we do that? In other words, how do we make disciples at Foothill? As a, as a church body, how do we go about What are the structures that we have in place to make disciples? And so in order to do that, we have a, we have a little chart. We're calling it the discipleship funnel. The discipleship funnel. It's just, a, it's just a visual representation and to try to help communicate how things fit together and why we do what we do. So what you notice is that on the left-hand side, that, that angled arrow coming in uh, speaks about increasing commitments. And the right-hand arrow, as it angles in, talks about increasing opportunities for gospel growth. And that's why we're calling it a funnel. And what we're saying is that at the, at, at the very top of the funnel, where it's at the very widest, there, there are, there are tremendous opportunities for commitment and for gospel growth, but they get, they get um, greater the further down the funnel you move. Now, notice we say opportunities for gospel growth. We're not guaranteeing gospel growth. You could, you could be participating in all of these various activities and still not be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Just like you could be baptized and, and, and reading your Bible and still not be a disciple of Jesus Christ. So this is not a guarantee. But this is a means by which we seek to help people become Disciples of Christ. So it begins in the preaching service. All right, so every week we gather together as a body. We open the word of God together and we seriously seek to understand it and to apply it to our lives. That's the big grouping. And there in the big grouping, there's a whole lot of, hey, how you doing, buddy? Hey, good brother, I'm doing great. Hey, sister, how are you? And what's your name? I don't know your name. And by the way, I'm going to sit in the same place every week because... Because I don't want to meet anybody new, right? <laughs> Way too scary. So there's just a sense of, of anonymity that exists in the, in the big preaching hour. Okay? Is it important? It's very important. But it's not all that's uh, available to, train, to, to grow as a disciple of Christ. Well, beyond that, we have the training hour, right? The training hour operates in, from September through May. And the purpose of the training hour is, again, to, to teach all that Jesus has commanded with an eye towards obedience. Again, it's not just designed to make one smarter in their Bible knowledge. All, anytime you receive knowledge of the Scripture, with it comes the, the requirement that you act upon it. Okay? To whom much has been given, much will be required. All right? So the training hour is a more focused approach to various topics having to do with the Christian life. Beyond that, we have men's and women's Bible studies. Again, they are, they are increasing commitments. They are opportunities for growth. There are relationships that are made at that level that are typically deeper than what is available through the preaching service or through the training hour. 
Awana fits in there, 128 Crossroads. They all fit in that general realm. And then we have small groups. Okay? The small group ministries are very important in the discipleship process. For it is within the small group ministries that you are best able to uh, have opportunity to, to fulfill the one another's of the New Testament. This is the place where you can learn patience. Okay? The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience. Patience is not difficult when you're with people who don't bother you. Right? That's why as an individual, you can be an incredibly patient person. It's when you introduce someone else into the relationship that all of a sudden it becomes a little more difficult. You enter into a small group, you, in, you, enter, uh, you engage with more people who are unlike you in so many ways. And, and we're all family, and so we can say, and sometimes they get under your skin, right? They kind of bug you. And this is the opportunity to learn patience with people. This is the opportunity to, to engage with people and actually live out the gospel hands and feet. So they're in the small groups. They're just essential, essential for that. They're also the mechanism by which leaders are developed. Because to be a leader in the church of God is, is more than just the ability to, to stand up and teach in some academic sense. It, in fact, first and foremost, is a, is a question of one's shepherding uh, desires and abilities. Can you work, do you love the people of God, and can you and will you work among the people of God to help them to grow in faith? That's leadership development, and it happens in the small groups with the small group leaders overseen by the elders who are working with them. Each elder has their own small group, their small group, of the various small group leaders of the other small groups. Okay? So that's how the mechanism works. Beyond that, we call it one-to-one. And we call it one-to-one because we couldn't think up a different title to put on it other than one-to-one. But it's one-to-one. It could be one-to-three. It could be four-to-two. It's, you know, you get the idea. It's, it's something smaller than a small group. These are the unprogrammed meetings of the people of God. Everything down to the small group level is a, is a programmatic structure of the church. Below that line, it is now up to you. It is no longer something we schedule. It's not something we program. It comes from your love and desire to be with other believers and to open the Word of God together and to grow in, in grace. Now, that may be to read a book together. It may be to study a passage of Scripture together. It may be to get together and pray. It may be to get together and go and, and love on someone by some act of service. But all of those things are spontaneous. They are unscheduled. They are unprogrammed. But they come as a result of following Christ and beginning to, to gain a sense of the heart of Jesus for his people. Now, what about evangelism? Where does evangelism occur? Well, if we were under the, the old missions strategy, then evangelism would occur here. It would be come and see, wouldn't it? Right? Didn't God set apart his people, make them very unique, and then set them in a place where the world would come by? And basically what they're saying is, is we have something you've got to see, come and see. But God changed that. 
God changed that. And because God changed that, this is not the primary place of evangelism. Now, does evangelism happen in here? Sure, it happens in here. Anytime the people of God together and they're speaking the word of God, there is, there is an opportunity for an unbelieving person who wanders in or is brought by a friend to hear the gospel and to, and to respond in faith as the Spirit enables. But the primary purpose is not evangelism. Why? The mission strategy, God's mission strategy has changed. Where does evangelism occur? Well, it can occur at any and all of these levels. During the training hour, men's and women's Bible studies, Awana, 128 Crossroads, small groups, it can all occur there, but it happens most effectively, most efficiently in one-to-one. It is one-to-one. If we were to go around this room and we were to ask people how you came to faith in Jesus Christ, I am sure we would be very much within the statistics, which says that for the vast majority of people, you came to faith in Christ as someone took an interest in you and shared the gospel with you. They led you to Christ. And that is how God does it. And so it is, it is in the unprogrammed, unscheduled, uh, spirit-empowered ministry of his people as they reach out to friends, family, neighbors, and coworkers. With the gospel of Jesus Christ, that's how people come to faith. That's how they enter into the very top of the funnel. A word about church planting. Church planting. We have planted two churches by the grace of God, and it is our desire to plant many more. We believe the scriptures teach that church planting is the heart of God. It is to to see people become disciples of Christ and then enfold it together in a local congregation, a local body of Christ. So we are committed to church planting. We are committed to church planting domestically. We are committed to church planting internationally. And it is in the church planting that there is the application, really, of all of these mechanisms for disciple-making, the preaching and training and Bible studies and small groups and one-to-one and so forth, by which Foothill is operating outside of its own geographical boundaries. We can only go so far, right? All of us, you know, it wouldn't be really too practical for all of us to try to, to get on an airplane and to fly over somewhere. So certain ones who, who have been gifted by the Lord and are passionate in this way and the congregation can examine them and, and, and representatively through their elders put their hands on them, we will send them out to do what we're trying to do here. Whether it be domestically in Fontana, whether it would be internationally in another country on the other side of the world. That's how... Church planting fits into the ministry strategy of Foothill Bible Church. Okay? So, I know this is fast. I share it with you, though. And I share it with you for the purpose of you understand it, but also that you be involved. It's July. Small groups are resting for the summer. Training hour is resting for the summer. Awana is resting for the summer. 128 is resting for the summer. Crossroads is resting for the summer. Men's and women's Bible studies are resting for the summer. You get the theme, right? Okay, it's summertime. The leaders are resting, and so are the participants. But come September, when the natural ebb and flow of, a, of the calendar, you know, for all of us comes around, these opportunities are going to present themselves again. And, and beloved, I can't encourage you strongly enough. Please, 
For the sake of your own soul. Commit yourself. Get involved. Participate. Give yourself in love to others. And see what the Spirit of God will do in you in this next year. You will be amazed. Let's pray. Father, we come to the end of this book and we close it. And as we do, the lessons that we have learned over the years are many. But what is ringing in our ears right now, what stirs our heart right now, is a recognition that we have a task. And that task is to go into the world and to make disciples. It's to teach them all that you have taught us. It is to grow together as we study the Scriptures. It is to baptize them Water baptism, our Father, of course, the symbol of the greater and deeper reality of them coming into fellowship with and under the lordship of the triune God. Our Father, how I pray for us that we can be good disciple makers. Each and every one of us, with our own little corner of the vineyard, our own little section of the field, the place where you have put us. For some, it is very small. For others, it's larger. And these things are, lie in your hand. They, they lie with you. They don't lie with us. But we want to be faithful where we are found. By first following after Christ wholeheartedly. By recognizing that you can gain the whole world. And if you don't have Christ, you've got nothing. And to order our priorities accordingly. And to seek to influence others accordingly. To be bold in the face of a world that increasingly is telling us to shut up. Or worse. Our Father, may you by your Spirit convince us that the King is with us in this. That His conquest of death and sin, the authority that He now holds, may it be the rock and anchor of our soul. May we build our lives on Christ. For He is the solid rock. Father, how we pray for this new year that will soon be upon us, this new ministry year, Father, may you enlarge and expand the reach of this fellowship, not institutionally, but but through the lives and ministries of, of those that make up this body, this family of Christ here. May you help us to reach Upland and the surrounding communities. May you help us to reach the world, those sections of it where we have opportunity and influence. May you help us to align our priorities, which will align our finances, 
that we might support the preaching of the gospel and the making of disciples. Our Father, we love you. And we are loved by you. In Jesus Christ, our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen.